Lord, we just come before you and we ask you to bless this time as we look into your word and help us to see what you would have us to see your Holy Spirit lead us. If anybody's on their way, that they'll get here quickly. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now these are the commandments and statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and all his commandments which I command you, you and your sons and your sons' sons in all the days of your life that your days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it that it may be well with you and that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in the land that flows with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently unto your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your home, and when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for the sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them upon the post of your house and on your gates, and it shall be when the Lord your God shall have brought you into the land which he swore unto your fathers and to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob to give you great and good, good cities which you built not, and houses full of things which you filled, filled not, and wells digged which you dig not, vineyards and olive trees which you plant not, and you shall have eaten to the full. Then beware, lest you forget the Lord which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Let's stop there for now. Verse 1, now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land you go to possess. Well, I just want to kind of bring out, there's three different words here that he's using. The first one is the commandments, and this is literally the precept, precepts or the prohibitions that God gives. He, he gives rules and says, this is what you're allowed to do or not allowed to do. And then he says, and the statutes, uh, which are the prescribed tasks that were given, the decrees that God gives us. And then he says, and the judgments, and those are the judicial type rules. So he's given them things that they're allowed to do, thing, uh, the prohibitations that they're do, to do, and the precepts they're supposed to do, and the judgments. And he says he expected them to keep them. And this is, this is something that he says, which your God commanded to teach you. And this is Moses, because remember at the beginning of the last chapter, when God, he's re reiterating to them how God spoke out loud to them, that they said, we don't want to hear him, Moses, you go. You go, t go talk to God and you tell us what he tells you. And so here he is, he's saying, these are the rules that God has told me to teach you. All right? And that you might do them in the land where you go to possess. So he says, I'm teaching you the rules for when you get into the promised land. And it is kind of amazing because when we get to the promised land, they start doing these things that they haven't been practicing before. And it, because we look and, and they had Passover when they left e Egypt 
And then it says, in I, in when they get into the land of land under in the first book of Jordan, that they have their first Passover. So all those forty years wandering in the desert, they didn't have Passover, is what it seems to say. And it's kind of amazing. This was something that was supposed to be perpetual. He's taught them a feast. All of these things came in way back, 41 years, you know, 40, 41 years before at Mount Sinai. And again, we go back, Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law. And Moses is going through and he's talking to the people that they've been wandering 40 years in the desert. The children do not necessarily remember what it was like before. And he's trying to tell them, this is what it was. This is what it was when we were in Egypt. This is what happened when we crossed the Red Sea. This is what it was like at the Mount Sinai. Here's the rules God gave us. And he's reiterating all the rules that he, that he gave in the book of Exodus and through Leviticus. So he says, here's these rules that you may possess it. And then verse 2, that you might fear the Lord your God and keep all of his statutes and his commandments, which I have commanded you, you and your son and your son's sons all the day of your life, that your days may be prolonged. And here he's saying, Number one, that you may fear God. Give him reverence. Give him the honor that's due him. This is something that we as Christians tend to forget because we get this idea of, well, we can come before the presence of God at any time, which we can. We can call him Father, which we can. But we tend to forget the fear of God. That God is righteous and holy and completely just, and he's still the sovereign God of this universe. If I am in awe of the God of the universe, I am going to reverence him and I'm going to fear him. But it's not necessarily, I mean, there is this picture of the fearing of quaking and, and being afraid, but it's more of the fear of the sovereign ruler. It would be the fear of, that we would have if you were to go and meet the president of the United States, you know, that this is somebody who's pretty high up. I don't really belong in in his presence type thing. And in, in reality, that's what we're supposed to feel when we come to be God. Yes, as Christians, we have this, we can come before him at all times. Yes, he is our father. But we also have to remember that he is the God of the universe. And I did a study one time on fear, the word, the word fear and trembling. There's about, I think it was 1,800 verses that used fear using the Hebrew and the Greek words for fear. And they basically break down into three categories. One is just about a third of them are just a straight statement. They were afraid. No moral judgment at all. It was David walked into the camp where Goliath challenged him and the people are afraid. There's no, no moral judgment. You know, there's times where they, were, they quaked. You know, and it was just another third of them are fear not. Okay, there's about a third of these verses in the Bible that say fear not. And then the other third are always fear God. And it broke down to pretty close to exactly one-third, one-third, one-third. When I came out of this study believing is that fear is a sinful condition because the only thing we're to fear is God. And if we're fearing something else, we're saying, God, you aren't in control of the situation, and I've got to be afraid of it. Now, granted, if an animal's attacking you, there's a, probably a place to be a fear, fear and, and flight. But to be in a condition of fear on a constant basis is not where we want to be. And I've met lots of people who are afraid of everything. It doesn't matter what it is, they're afraid of it, or they're afraid of the future. Just plain afraid of the future, or 
afraid that they've done things in the past that is going to be judging them. And this is where God says, fear not. He's in control. He's sovereign. And the only thing we're ever told to fear is God. In, in the New Testament, it said, cast all your fears upon him, for he cares for you. And if we're, if we're really in a position where we're trusting God, there really isn't anything to fear. Because nothing will happen to us that God does not allow to happen. And that he did not plan to happen. Because he said, because he'll stop. And, it, and Job is the great example. You know, Satan comes up to God. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Of course I have, but you won't let me touch him. And God says, okay, you can do this to him. And, you, and you know, the first time is take away his possessions. Uh, the next time is take away his you know, family and then take away his health. You know, but God says, this is all you can do. And God is that much in control that we cannot, we should not be afraid of the future or even the past. You know. And yes, in the, in the momentary time when something is threatening us, there is that flight or, or fight fear that hits us. And that's probably a valid, and number one, it's physiological. It's not, it's not really a mental. This is just saying, run. Your life is in trouble, run or stand, stand still and fight. Uh, but to be in fear and paranoia of things is not where you want to be. And then this one is, is the good one, that you may fear the Lord. And that's that reverential awe of his position and who he is. Uh, this is when we back into chapter 5 where they were saying, you know, Moses, we don't want to hear him anymore. You go, you know, we don't, you know, uh, we don't want to know God. And, that, and we talked about how most people get into that position with God. God, we don't want to hear from you. You know, we'll let somebody else sit here and, and kind of chew it up for us and tell us what we need to know, but we don't want to be in your presence. And here he's saying, you're giving you these rules and these statutes that you would fear God. And not be paralyzed in fear, but just the reverential awe. Look at what God is telling us. God told his people exactly how he wanted them to live and serve him. And this is the great thing because most religions don't have this type of mentality. You're left to kind of guess, what does God want? It's not, how do I live? How do I manage? And this is true of virtually every religion out there. You don't know whether you've done enough good to please the God because he doesn't tell you how much is good. None of the other religions have a God that loves them. Which is, again, one of those things that sets Christianity apart. God loves us. How much does he love us? He sent his son to die for us. How much does he love us? He protects us from the enemy who has to ask for permission on what he can and can't do. How much does he love us? He tells us exactly what it, what it takes to please him and who he is. And this is something that's very important. And this is why many of the cults have problems, because it's all based on works. Can I, earn, can I earn the forgiveness of God? No, you can't earn the forgiveness of God. He says we can't. And this is why it is just, this brings us in awe of God. God, I am so inspired by you that you love me enough that you sent your son to die for me so that I could be your child forever. And that should drive us to serving him. Unfortunately, oftentimes it doesn't. <laughs> But just how much he loves us and cares and gives us grace should just really, for me, I just want to serve God. Not because I'm trying to please him and make him love me, but just because he's given me everything. 
And that's the way I was with my parents. My parents were good parents. They, they, they loved us, and we knew that, and I wanted to do what pleased them. I didn't, you know, of course, I was a compliant kid, too, so it was easy to do, but, uh, but I wanted to do things that would help make them feel good and, and, and be pleased. And here is what he's saying. God's giving you these rules, and your, your fear should drive you to love him enough. And he's going, and of course he's also given the fact that they shed, you know, they have to offer the sacrifices, and and we covered all those sacrifices in the past, and I believe we'll cover them again in Deuteronomy. But the whole thing is, he loved us. He gave us statutes, and the statutes are again those prescriptions of what you're allowed to do and not do. And then he gave us commandments, which are the uh, uh, prohibitions that he gives us. So. He's given us things to do and things not to do. And this is something he's done all along. And he goes, I want you to give these sacrifices. Why? Not because the sacrifice is what is going to make you perfect, but it symbolizes all these things. And we spent a long time talking about how the burnt offering was to show my total dedication to God in a sim in symbolic way. Not that I burned myself, but I burnt, I had the, animal burnt so that I'm showing I'm dedicated to you God and then the fellowship offering where we give where you offer this animal and God gets a small part of it the priests get a part of it and you get to take the rest of it home and have to eat it within 24 or 48 hours depending on the reason so you obviously can't eat the whole the whole uh, cow yourself so you you had a party with all your friends saying, hey, we're going to have a party with God. And I love the way that one pastor talked about that offering. He goes, it's a picnic with God. You know, it was that kind of fellowship offering. And so we see that God is saying, I'm giving you the ways to, to serve me. And he says, these commandments I'm giving you are for you, your son, and your grandchildren, basically, your son's sons. And, and the reason being is that your days may be prolonged. And if we think about this, how many of us have pains and sufferings in our older age because of the mistakes we did when we were younger and the bad things we did when we were younger? Whether it be abusing alcohol and drugs or, or getting into accidents because we were driving like a nut or losing our hearing because of the, you know, uh, you know all the little things we do and then we suffer later on because of we, all the different things and God's saying, your life is prolonged. You honor him. And then he physically will say, as he said in, in the Ten Commandments, if you honor your parents, you will have long life. And that's just a promise. Again, it's the same type of promise. If I'm honoring my parents, I'm being obedient. I'm not going to do the things that are going to harm me and harm my body anyway. So that increases my, my length, life anyway. And then God has just the promise of increasing my life just because I'm being obedient. And here he's saying the same thing. Be obedient, long life. And so we see this over and over where God's saying, my rules, my rules are not there to take away your fun. You know, how many teenagers have thought their parents were there just to give them a hard time and, and make it that they couldn't have fun? How many times have we looked at God's rules and said, God, you just don't want us to have fun? And then we violate them and realize that it wasn't there to keep us from not having fun, but to actually protect us and here he's saying you want long life obey my rules I'm giving you the rules now we know in the New Testament that Jesus fulfilled the law we are not under the law anymore but 
as I've said many times, because the law is who God is, okay, his rules were not just capriciously made. He didn't say, well, let's see, is lying good or bad and kind of flip a coin? Okay, he said lying is bad. Why? Because God does not lie. Okay, uh, coveting is bad. Why? Because God says, I can give you everything you need. You don't need to be having these inordinate desires for things that aren't yours. Uh, you know, stealing is bad because God says, I'm giving you things. And if you're stealing, you're stealing from him, basically. Okay, uh, honoring the Lord. Every, everything that God talks about is based in his character. They're not just, uh, uh, let's see, what, is this good or bad? Let me figure it out. No. It, so the more we get to know God and the more he fills us and the more he changes who we are, the more we will act according to the law not because I'm trying to be good or not because I'm trying to please him, but because he's changing me to be more like him. And as I become more like him, I'm going to automatically obey the law without even knowing it. Okay, I've met people who don't study the Old Testament and then, you, and then they have been a Christian for a long time and they start looking at the Old Testament and go, wow, you know, I do this, I do this, and they find out how much they're, they're doing just because God has changed them to be more like him. And here's God saying, I want you to follow these and it will give you length of days. Uh, somebody who is committing adultery and fornication and then wonders why they get sick with all the venereal diseases and sexually transmitted diseases and shorten their life because of their playing around, which the world says, you know, go ahead and do that when you're young. Get your, get your wild oats out of your system so that you can you know, be able to commit later on. And God saying, no, I'm not giving you even that youthful indiscretion time. God says, I expect the children to be obedient. And this is why he says, these commandments are for you, your son, and your grandchildren. Okay? The whole family was to get these rules and start living by them. Verse 3 says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do that it may be well with you, and that you may increase mightily, and that the Lord of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. He says, be obedient, and I'm going to bless you. And this is a true statement. The more obedient we are to God, the more blessings we get. I was talking with a couple of guys today, and it was kind of interesting. We were talking about how when we're obedient to God, even though we have hardships and trials, and that's part of being a Christian, is hardships and trials, yet there's the peace and contentment that comes with it. I have had many trials and hardships and, and temptations, but yet, I will tell people, I wouldn't trade my Christian walk for anything. Evie, in a long time, used to sing, you know, about, you know, if there is no heaven, she's still happy and been pleased with. But then I took that song to heart, actually, because it, it does, it's how I feel. Even if there isn't a heaven in the future, I don't feel like I've lost anything by following God. Because I've got the peace that he has, I've got him in my life, but because I have him in my life and I have the peace, I know that there's a heaven. Because of he's been honest in all the rest of the places, I know that I can trust him in the future and that there is a heaven. But even if there isn't, I'm not, I've not deprived myself of anything. It is a great place to be when you know that God is, God is there and he is, is going to be honest because he's been honest in every place else, which means that he is honest that there is a heaven waiting for us and that it is perfect. And it can't even compare to what he's given us here. But... I still feel, compared to most people that I talk to, that I've lived in a pretty heavenly position already. Even though there's trials and, and hardships, I don't feel deprived. I don't feel 
uh, that God has said, you know, taking all the fun away from life. Uh, and he says, when you honor me, I will bless you. The question is, of course, what is a blessing? Obviously, I'm not a millionaire and have, have a bunch of cars that are the, 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 the newest version and all that, but God has blessed me and given me whatever I need without things that are important anyway. And God says, I'm going to bless you. And this is, this is the perfect thing. He says, oh, you're going to the land flowing with milk and honey, with plenty. Here you go. But we want to be careful in that that we don't make them think that it's a trouble-free life either. Because that is kind of the American, uh, the, the European gospel. Come to God and everything's going to be okay. Well, that's a yes and a no. He's going to give me lots of trials, lots of temptations, lots of do you believe me and are you going to trust me trials. But he still gives me the blessing and the confidence and the assurance as I, as I learn. And this, the, this bad part is, is that there is a big push out there that says, well, turn to God and everything you know, is going to be okay. And I hate that message because, but you also have this problem that people look at and they go, well, you told me that Jesus was going to be this, the answer to all my problems. And yes, he is, but not necessarily the way that they think about it in the first part. Because yes, he is the answer to my problem, because I just trust in him. And he walks me through, and he walks me through the shadow of the valley of death. He walks me through the, the trials, and he is there with me. So we mean something a little different. And again, it goes to this idea of, are we defining our terms the same? When I witness to people anymore, I need to explain, you know, figure out, when I've used the word God, or, and they hear the word God, are they hearing the same thing that I'm saying? Because in this day and age, they may not be. They may be thinking about Allah, this God that doesn't love them, and, and, and you don't know whether you've pleased it or not. And I'm thinking of a loving God who cares enough to send his son Jesus to die for us so that we can go to heaven. Maybe they're Hindu, and they're, and they're worshiping uh, the God of war or they're into Taoism or Tao or Zen and they've got a whole different set of gods. And we need to make sure that they're even thinking the same thing we are. Or you talk to a Native American who's not a Christian who's thinking, my natives, you know, my, my ancestors I pray to, or, or the trees or the an plants and animals which get you into naturalism and that everything is God. Or, you know, and we need to make sure that we kind of when we're talking to people that we're talking the same thing even if you use the name Jesus Jesus means so many different things to people depending on what what cult or, or religion they're from you know if you talk to a Muslim Jesus is just a great prophet or a good prophet now how he could be a good prophet and say all the lies that they would say that he said I don't know but we see this all the time that in our day and age we need to define what it is we're talking about when we say Jesus God's gonna bless you they're thinking of, okay, I'm going to have a big house, lots of money, and all the nice cars. No, that's not necessarily going to be a blessing. And so we need to be careful how we determine and talk to people. They need to understand that the truth is maybe not what they think it is. We want to be careful of that. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. The, the very pinnacle of everything that they talk about. Your, the Lord your God is one Lord. Elohim is a very interesting word, even in the Jewish language, because Elohim is a plural word for a single, singular God. Which, for us Christians, we have no problem with that. We see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in that, because they are one, even though they're three, they're one. And, I, and when we look at the word Elohim, we see the Trinity. And, 
But this, to the Jews, is one of the problems they have with Christianity because as the Jews, as do the Jehovah's Witnesses and many other, and, and the Muslims, they all believe, well, you guys have, have three gods. And they go, no, and we go, no, we don't. We have one God who's in three, pe you know, in three individual individuals. And it's a concept that's hard to understand. And when I teach the Trinity, I always start with the very fact of, we're going to show you all the verses that support the Trinity. And when I get done, you're not going to understand the Trinity any better than when, I, when we started, because it's a concept that we cannot grasp with our finite human brains. How can you have three separate individuals and yet they are one? And we try showing all kinds of different ways of doing it. You know, we'll say, you know, you can look at water. Water can be ice, uh, liquid, or steam. But they can't be all three at once, which kind of tears apart. We, we'll look at the egg, which is a shell, yolk, and the white of the egg. But the moment you break it, you, you've destroyed the, the unity of it and cannot recombine it. So everything we point to can show you kind of what the Trinity is, but it isn't. The tr it breaks down at some point within the, in the description of the Trinity. All of those are good because they kind of show uh, we as individuals are a Trinity. We're, we're body, soul, and spirit, especially once we're saved. But we also can't break ourselves up. So again, we can't, we, it breaks down when we think, because we look at this and the greatest example is probably, you know, when Jesus was baptized and the Father spoke from heaven, the Holy Spirit came down and anointed him as in the picture of the dove and Jesus was standing there in the water, able to be showing up in these different ways, but it's all one. They're not individuals, but they're different ways that he shows himself. It's, it's, a, it's a fallacy because they are three individuals and we saw that at Jesus's baptism that they are three separate individuals and yet they are one and combined. They've been in perfect fellowship for all of eternity. The very first chapter of Genesis says, let us make man in our image. And a lot of people will say, well, God was talking to the angels. No, I do not believe that because the angels are not in the image in that well, same way. That's the only way we can do it. And this is why I say, when I teach the, when I teach, uh, on the Trinity, I will go and I'll show dozens of verses about the Trinity just to show you that the Bible says it. Okay, the Bible teaches it. The Holy Spirit accepts worship and and is talked about as, as as a person with emotions that can be grieved. Jesus is a person that accepts worship and can be grieved. The Father is a person that can be that accepts worship and can be grieved. You know, it's very clear that the Holy Spirit isn't just the power of God that falls upon us. It is a literal individual that receives worship and, and, and is a, can be grieved and, and has all the personality of, of a in separate entity and person. It's not just power. Okay, and then people will say God's the spirit part of, of God. You know, the Father is the spirit part of God. You know, you know, and Jesus is the physical part of the, and yes, there's some truth to that, but it's still separating them and move, moving into this modes of God that you know, you, they're not one. And because if they're not one, then the father could not have turned his back on Jesus on the cross when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he couldn't have been forsaken if they're not in separate individuals when God had to turn his back on him. 
So, and the Holy Spirit, of course, would have turned his back on him at that time because he became sin and was the sacrifice. So the Trinity belief is an absolute necessity to, to totally understand who God is and, and what he's doing. Uh, it is one of those few things that you can say this is something that has to be believed. Otherwise, you've got some huge theological issues that have to be dealt with. And you can't get into this modalism. You can't get into this, you know, well, they're, they're just one and it's different personalities that he's showing you. Uh, but literally, they are individuals. And there's plenty of scripture that we show that with. And people go, well, can you pray to the Holy Spirit? I'm going, well, the Holy Spirit is God. If you want to pray to him, be my guest. He's God. And we pray to Jesus, we pray to the Father, he's God, go ahead and pray to him. I've never really had the inclination to pray to the Holy Spirit because it does tell us that he pushes everything to God. But he is God. So there's no, you know, you're not going to go wrong praying to him, but I mean, and that's kind of how we're supposed to. And the Holy Spirit is to direct everything to God. So I don't think the Holy Spirit really wants to be worshipped and, and, and prayed to, but he is God. So it's not, you know, you're not going to go wrong. You're not worshiping an idol if you prayed to him but his whole job is to point point to the father and to this and to the son so i don't think that he wants the prayer it's it's like somebody who's serving god and doesn't want the recognition you know because it's not them it's god working through them the holy spirit's job is to convict us of sin and to direct us and point us to jesus yeah and that's a big job and then once we're saved he infills us and he empowers us to to become like you know become like God because he's changing spiritual DNA of our body to be more like God so and he's got a big job and that's why Jesus said the one the one thing that is unforgivable is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's primary job is to point people to Jesus and bring them to Jesus so if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit you're you basically have rejected Jesus is what it boils down to because his primary job is to draw us to Jesus. And that's the only thing that sends us to hell is to reject Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's job is to bring us into... Now, once we're saved, he's got a, he now has a new job, and that's to make us become more like God and to infill us and give us gifts and everything. But we're not going to blaspheme him at that point because he's in us. We've, we've accepted his primary job. And this is something that's important, you know, because it's, it's always been said, and, you know, I hear it on the radio all the time, and I basically have learned it a long time ago. If anybody's asking and concerned about having blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they haven't. If they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't care. They would be so evil, they wouldn't care that they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is before salvation and, and rejecting his directing toward Jesus. And that means that it's an unforgivable sin because you've rejected Jesus. I hope that makes some sense. We got on the Trinity with on this one, verse 5. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is very important for us because God is saying he wants to be loved basically with everything we have here. Heart in Hebrew is the innermost being of who I am. So God's saying, love me with everything that you have in your most innermost being. Love him with your soul, who you really are, and then love him with all of our might or our strength. And this is a tall order. You know, most of us do not love God to this level. No matter how long we've been walking with God, this is 
a goal that we should be wanting to reach, but we'll probably never reach it until we get our glorified body. To love God with all of, of who I am, with all my strength. How often do we sit down and go, God, I'm just so tired, I don't want to do anything more. Happens frequently. And God's saying, well, you're not supposed to be doing it in your own strength anyway. I'm the one giving you the strength. And this is, I've listened to different pastors, especially who've gone overseas to some of these places where people are really hungry for the word. And, you know, even a good pastor who just loves to teach. And I've heard a couple of them say, I was worn out. After 10 hours of straight teaching, I was ready to go lay down. And they weren't, they wanted more because they just, there's a love for God's word in some of these places that don't get his word. And we in America are really spoiled. Yes. Almost every Christian has probably three or four Bibles in their house. Uh, most non-Christians have a Bible or two in their house. We can turn on the radio and TV and listen to preaching all day. We can get on our internet and listen to preaching all day. And yet, how many of us listen to preaching and teaching and get into the word for the major even the majority of our day? You know, usually it's like, okay, God, I gave you three or four hours. That's, I'm done. You go to some of these places in behind in Russia that used to be behind the Iron Wall, or you go into China, or you go into places in Africa and South America. These a lot of these people are hungry for God's word, and they and they've devoured everything they can by pages. But they're ready for a teacher to come along, and just help them understand and help them get a deeper knowledge. And we in America go, well, the pastor's been speaking for an hour. I guess he's, I hope he's ready to stop sometime soon. And I've heard that kind of stuff from people. Well, when is he gonna get done? I mean, he's been gone. He started it, you know, he started an hour ago. You know, it's, and it's like, they're watching their watch, you know, looking at that watch, you know, how, how much longer can this guy go? Well, and I can remember there was this uh, Scottish, uh, Scottish or English pastor that said, there's going to come a time when people won't, in, won't endure a two to three hour message. That was only a couple hundred years ago that he said that. And where are we at nowadays? If you talk more than 20, 30 minutes in the average church, people are like, when's this guy going to shut up? And I've seen this. I've seen it over and over again, which is one of the things I appreciate here is that there's not people sitting there, okay, you know, it's, you know, you know pastor, stop, you know, it's, you know. And, the, and there's this idea that I can go on. I can go past and not have everybody getting upset about having the word of God go past the time that they think they should be ending. And I really appreciate about this church allowing me that freedom to be able to teach as long as God wants me to teach. And just, you know, and I am honest to try to keep it down into the right time frame as well. But, but if God's not done, I'm going to continue. And... This is where God's saying, all of our strength, all of our might, all of our heart and our soul, that we sit and we go, give him everything we have and serve him. And sometimes that means we serve him when we're tired. Sometimes it means we serve him when, when I would rather not. God, I just don't want to speak to this person. And then you end up being like uh, Jeremiah that says, his words burned in my mouth and I couldn't help but speak. And there's times when that's happened to me when I go, God, I don't want to talk to this person. And, and I just couldn't help but speak to that person and say something. Oh, it's always good when that happens, but you know, it's, it's hard at the same time because this is the goal. This is God's ultimate. 
love him with all of our strength, all of our heart, all of our soul. When it's quoted in the New Testament, he also puts in with all of your mind, which is really included in this heart and soul part. But in the Septuagint version, which the New Testament quotes in most cases, they added mind to make sure they included everything. Uh, but this idea of how much do we serve him? How much are we willing to serve him? Most of us give up long before God is ready for us to give up and say, God, I'm just not going to go any further. My body's tired, I'm sore, I, you know. But a lot of times that just shows that we're the one trying to serve him rather than him working through us. And it's a great, great experience to have that happen. Verse 6 says, And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk in your way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. I love, especially verse 7, you know, that I'm going to keep God's word in my heart. And so much so that whatever I'm doing, I'm ready to talk about him. Does that mean he's the only thing I talk about? No. But this is saying all those teachable times, when you're sitting in your house with your children, all those teachable times when you say, this is what God says, and you know, this is this is what he wants you to do and this is how he wants you to do you know they talked about walking i can remember when we used to go driving with my kids and we'd sing we'd sing bible songs and we'd talk about bible stories and and we'd sing the hymns and the choruses and the bible bible verses that we knew and and you know when you lay down are you thinking about god or when you rise up are you thinking about god are you teaching our children this reality of god Many, many children are leaving the church and the primary reason is that they have not seen a real God in their home. They've seen their parents go and, and play church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And even if you went all the time, there's still that idea that they're playing church. If you don't bring God into your home every day of the week, as you, what are you watching? What are you listening to? How are you doing this? I've shared with people, my second, my second son is a movie buff. He was always watching movies. And I knew that I would never be able to change his desire to watch movies, so I would watch him at the end of the, at the, end of the movies for about a month. I would sit down, I was watching movies with him a lot during that period of time, and I'd ask him, how did this movie glorify God? How did this movie give us a blessing that has made it worth watching? Now, my ultimate goal was I wanted him to hear my voice at the end of every movie saying, was this a godly thing? Did I, have, I used, have I used my time wisely? Now, I don't know for sure whether I've accomplished that, but he is a little more, using a little more discretion when he watches movies. To, you know, but my whole point was I wanted him to hear those words. How has this blessed God? How has this been godly? Because it was so important. To, to know that he was going to be a movie buff and he was going to do this so he needed to be a little more sensitive you know on what he was watching when we like I say we would drive around and we would just sing songs all, you know as we drove around and praise God and ask questions and bring them to God and now I've known many because I've worked with children for a long time in churches and I've known many children who would go you know well, uh, usually, really, just let me tell you about my dad. I go, no, I don't want to hear about your dad. You know, our, our goal is to 
honor God, especially if it was a pastor's kid, a pastor's kid who was trying to tell you about this, you know, because you knew that he was going to tell you that his dad wasn't being a pastor at, at heart at home. And I didn't need to hear that. I didn't need to hear them tell me about how bad their parents are. And so I would usually guide them, like, you know what you need to do? You need to pray for your parents. You need to ask them Bible questions to try to draw them in. You know, you could be the leader in this case by, by talking to your parents and asking them your Bible questions. And it's been amazing as you watch youth in this day and age that are either very hot for God or extremely cold for God. They're, the ones that are hot they're, and, and cold, they're both. They're looking for a real God that they can believe in. And if they don't get their questions answered, they'll get cold and say the answers aren't there. If they get their answers, they're going, I love this God. This is the God I want to serve. And this is one of the things I've shared with people. In the church, we need to be ready and willing to address even the most bizarre, sacrilegious question that they might ask. You know, if they ask me, you know, how, you know, how do you know there's a God? I don't, I don't know that I believe in a God. I want them asking that question in the church. Now, I've had many people go, well, how can you ask that question? We all know that there's a God. I go, that does not help the, help the child or the teenager that's trying to find answers. All that tells them is don't ask these questions that, that the church, that go against the church and the church. And where are they going to go ask those questions? amongst their friends or in school or their or their teachers or on the internet and get all the wrong answers we need to be ready how do i know there's a god oh let me explain how we know there's a god well how how do you know i can how do we know we can believe the bible let's go through it and let's show you this is how the bible was was com compiled and this is what god god gave us and here's how we know that it's supernatural because there's no contradictions in it and there's no errors in it you know, so we, we go through and we answer their questions and we give them confidence that our God is a God that can handle questions. This is the great thing about being a Christian. We can question anything about God in his book and it will, will stand up to the scrutiny. None of the other books, none of the other religions hold up to scrutiny. They all fall apart when they're looked in because you'll find all these mistakes and lies and and bad information. The Bible, every time it talks about an archaeological location, if they go dig in that archaeological location, they find the city that it talks about. Now sometimes it's a little harder to find where, where that city is, but they get enough maps that they can find where it is. When it talks about people, it's true. When it puts things together, and this is what we talked about yesterday in the in the 70 weeks of Daniel, how his how his accuracy of this 69 weeks no matter which way you want to go is it's accurate okay it takes you to the Messiah in 69 weeks so we look at this where it talks about science even though it's not a science book where it talks about science it is right it talks about the earth being a globe it talks about the earth hanging in space with on, on nothing it talks about it going around the sun. It, it, it talks about the water cycle. It talks about the navigation paths of the seas. It talks about the nitrogen cycle. You know, it says that everything reproduces after its kind, which is exactly what science says unless you're an evolutionist. Uh, but even they know that it doesn't produce, that it has to produce after its own kind because they're, you know, you'll talk to them and go, well, you know, give me an example of evolution and they'll always give you something within the same kind and they go, well, what did it start out with? You know, it started out as a bacteria. What did it end up with? A bacteria. Well, 
that isn't evolution. You know, I want to see some, you want to see the bacteria become a bird or 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 or, or a cat become a dog or you know something of that nature. You know, but when the Bible talks, it is accurate. It is trustworthy. It holds up to scrutiny. And most of the people who become great apologists usually started by being an atheist or an agnostic trying to disprove the Bible. And the more they dug into it, the more they found out that it was absolutely true. Lee Strobel is one of the newest ones who went in, you know, his wife became a Christian. He decided he was going to go into the Bible and, and show her all the problems with Christianity and ended up becoming a Christian. Josh McDowell of the, of the previous generation that, that I grew up with, you know, went in, uh, you know, in college to, to finally disprove the Christianity once and for all and ended up being a Christian apologist. Uh, and this has been true over and over and over throughout the years. People go in, they're going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to tear apart this Christian thing once and for all, and they come back out as a Christian. It's the only book in, in religion that will hold up to intense scrutiny and, and prove that it's true. And God is saying, teach it to your children. Teach it to your children. The children are looking for something that's real. And they really quickly learn when it's not real, when it's just mon Sunday morning with mom and dad and they put, on their, they put on their Sunday best, they put on their Sunday smile and everything is good and everything is hunky-dory and God is good and then they gripe about everything all week long and the kids learn very quickly, oh, this isn't a real God. They're just putting on, they're putting on. Uh, one of the things I appreciated about my dad is anytime I asked him a question, we went to the scriptures. You know, I appreciate it now. I didn't really appreciate it as a teenager, and it's kind of hard to argue when your dad goes to the Bible to tell you why you shouldn't do something. You know, uh, why should you be pure? Well, right here, you know, <laughs> goes to the Bible. You know, it's, you know, yes, I wanted that answer, but by the same token, it kind of took out, you know, how teenagers will sometimes argue with their parents when they give them their opinion. But when you're giving God's opinion, it kind of uh, took away all argument. But, it, but at the same time, I appreciated it. Here's the standard. Here's the standard we're going to live by. Uh, I've shared with parents, how many times have your kids caught you praying? How many times have they caught you studying the word? And, and I feel sorry for moms a lot of times because they're trying to get their study done when it's, you know, before the kids get up. But by the same token, sometimes that means the kids never saw mom reading the, reading the Bible. Doesn't mean that she didn't. They never saw her. And that has an impact. Unless she talks about what she read that morning. And not everybody who did that do that but how are we doing this are we teaching them just rote prayers you know let's pray for let's pray for our meal and we give them you know and we teach them to pray three times a day but no real sincere prayer and this is very critical and this is what this verse talks about when i sit down with my kids are we talk are we able to bring god into the situation when we're when we're walking around and you see that mountain over there isn't it wonderful that god created that mountain and, and that eagle look at that look at the mag majestic uh, eagle over there. You know, God created that eagle and he made it with eyesight. They can see the mouse down on the ground from that high up and gave him the ability to, to, to hunt it. You know, and we bring God into every part of our life and every part of their life. And not just on Sunday morning, not just on you know Wednesday night, but every day we bring this into their life. We bring them into prayer. We bring them into God's word. We bring them into the importance of who God is. And we say, see, this is, this is our God. This is the God that we worship. 
And too many people kind of have multiple hats. This is my church hat. You know, this is my time with God. They take that hat off and they become, this is my business. And heaven help anybody who gets in my way in business. I'm going to be ruthless. I'm going to tear them apart. God, you stay out of there. You don't have any business in business, God. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, because this is a ruthless, you know, we've got to lie for the right times and we've got to cheat people to, you know, and we keep God out of it. And then we get into, this is my time for sports and, and play, and God kind of stay out of it because I just love to play hard, you know. I, 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 I'm going to play these, these sports that, are, that can hurt people, and I'm going to play hard, and I'm not going to care about them. And we put on all these different hats, and God gets left out of those pieces of our lives. And our kids look at it and say, well, who is this God that you're, that you're supposedly worshiping you know, when you put your God hat on? Because he's not applied in any of your other areas of your life. And this is very important. God is a God 24-7, 365 days a year. He's our God. And he has input in our life and the way we act. When we're in the business world, we treat people with respect because that's what God does. Does that mean we do make some stupid deals that are going to hurt us? No. We can still be smart and savvy. But we're not looking to get everything out of the deal, squeeze every nickel out of that deal so that they get hurt and I win. A perfect deal is when everybody wins. The perfect solution to a problem is when everybody wins. And I don't like the word compromise because when you compromise, people, both parties have lost. And both parties come out of a compromise feeling like they've lost. You need to find the win-win situation, and there's always a win-win situation in my experience where everybody comes out the winner. Compromise is not what God's looking for. He's not saying, well, you're going to lose here, and I'm going to lose here, and we, all, and we both lose, so we, you know, we're okay. We both got a little bit of what we wanted, but we both lose. You need to get this win. This is how we both win. And there are a lot of those possibilities out there, and God will show us how to make sure both parties win. And it may mean that we're not getting every ounce out of the, out of the deal, but you know what? I don't need every ounce out of the deal to win. They need to have something. And so often we get, we get suckered and cheated because we're looking to get everything. Now, I want everything, they get nothing, and then we get conned because they you know, they're not going to get nothing. If they know anything, they're not going to get nothing. They've, they've won probably because they've given you some suckers, sucker deal that you thought you won until you get it. And if you work with somebody and you both have a win-win situation, then there's this, you're not going to be conned as often because you're looking for what's best for them and what's best for you. You're not trying to cheat them out of every possible thing you can get out of it. It's all compromise in the government, and, and people all come away feeling like they've lost. Well, we've also gotten to the point where, because we don't recognize that people are evil, there's been a lot of power given to the government that shouldn't have been there constitutionally or any other way, because they, we have this teaching that we're basically good. And if we're basically good, that means that our leaders have what's best for our sake in their, in their minds, and they don't. They're evil people trying to do what's best for them. And they're not statesmen trying to do what's best for the country. This is the problem. Our founding fathers understood that people were evil. Yes. And that's why they didn't trust government. And that's why they put so many checks and balances on the federal government, because they didn't want the government to be able to do whatever they wanted as they became evil and grabbed more power. And because of the power 
started abusing people. And yet we see that in today's world. And we see them taking more and more power, more and more authority, which isn't allowed in the Constitution, and saying, well, and, the, and then the Supreme Court saying, oh, well, yeah, you can have it. You, we need it to govern. You know, well, no, the, it was never to be that way. And again, it comes down to, am I agreeing with God as who people are? And this is why I say, when people do things that are bad, I am not surprised. Even if they're Christians, I am not surprised when they do bad things. Because that is who we are by nature. A non-Christian does something nice and kind with no, no with, you know, just out of the goodness of their heart, quote-unquote, I'm a little more amazed. But usually they've got some ulterior motive behind it to, to manipulate in the future. When a Christian does something nice, I'm going, okay, they're living according to God. And then that's good. And they're not living according to their internal nature. They're living according to the sanctified nature that God has given them. But by the same token, when they do something wrong, it doesn't bother me that much because I expected it because that is who we are by nature. And even though we're saved and sanctified and we are saints and we are perfect in God's sight, the bad news is we still sin. You know, we still sin. We at least have the power to live a righteous life if we will just surrender to God and let him crucify our flesh. But unfortunately, so often we don't do that. And we're not want walking with God. We haven't started our day right. And it's kind of obvious, you know, when I don't start my day reading the scriptures and praying before God, that day usually is a miserable day at some point until I finally realize, oh, I've got to come to God and get, get him involved in this life. Martin Luther one time was asked, you know, goes, you got a really busy day. How are you going to get by? And he's going, well, I'm going to go spend another hour in prayer, which meant that he was actually going to get up an early hour earlier and spend another hour in prayer to focus everything he did on God. This is something important. When I'm having a hard time, am I, do I focus on God? And I share with when I was in the restaurants, I used to do this a lot. In the middle of a chaotic, hectic point, a lot of times I would either go to the walk-in, which was my second choice, or I'd take the trash out. And I would just sing a hymn or you know, say a quick prayer, refocus everything back on God, and walk back into the chaos with a totally different mental attitude. God is in control. God has given me the peace and I don't have to worry about it. And it made, me good, made some of those very hectic times good because I wasn't sitting there trying to struggle in my own strength and God was giving me insight to the problems. And this all comes down to, am I walking so much with him that I bring him into everything? I've shared with you, I used to love going to the restaurant and saying, you know what God did this last weekend or yesterday for us? You know, and sharing what God did to all these kids, all these kids and, and, and adults who didn't know anything about God and didn't care about, adult, about God. And I'm bringing God in the middle of their situation and praising him for what he's done. And every once in a while, somebody would ask a question and open up the door. But it was just, I'm going to share with these people like I would in church. You know, hey, look, listen to what God did. All right, let's close in prayer. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to love you. We ask you that you guide and lead us as we, as we move forward this week and, and just teach us what you would have us to know and teach us what you would have us to understand. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.